0: Okay. Okay. Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabi Hari Jaya Radha Shri Parakamalam Shri sri rupam sagrjatam sagana raganatam vitam danashidyam sadvaitam salrutam varijana saita krishna chaitanya devam shi radha krishna padam sagana radita shi vishakam vitam shcha <inaudible> om nama bhagavate sudevaya om bhagavate vasudeva Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya December 27th 2011 And this is Skype class reading from Shrimad Bhagavatam Canto 1 Chapter 14 text 10 Pasyot Patana NARAVYAGRA DIVYAM BHO MAN DARUNAM shamsato DURAD I am no Bodhi Mohanam. Okay. Yeah. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. So this is Maharaj Udhisthira speaking to Bhima. Just see, O man with a tiger's strength, how many miseries due to celestial influences, earthly reactions, and bodily pains, all very dangerous in themselves, are foreboding danger in the near future by diluting our intelligence. PURPORT Material advancement of civilization means advancement of the reactions of the threefold miseries due to celestial influence, earthly reactions, and bodily or mental pains. By the celestial influence of the stars, there are many calamities like excessive heat, cold, rains, or no rains, and the after-effects are famine, disease, and epidemic. The aggregate result is agony of the body and the mind. Man-made material science cannot do anything to counteract these threefold miseries. They are all punishments from the superior energy of maya, under the direction of the Supreme Lord. Therefore, our constant touch with the Lord by devotional service can give us relief without our being disturbed in the discharge of our human duties. The Asuras, however, who do not believe in the existence of God make their own plans to counteract all these threefold miseries, and so they meet with failures every time. The Bhagavad Gita 7.14 clearly states that the reaction of material energy is never to be conquered because of the binding effects of the three modes. They can simply be overcome by one who surrenders fully in devotion under the lotus feet of the Lord. I'll try one thing here to approve the sound. Okay. Patam man sham Sato Durad yo no budimo mohanam. Just see, O oh man with a tiger's strength, how many miseries due to celestial influences, earthly reactions, and bodily pains, all very dangerous in themselves, are foreboding danger in the near future. By diluting our intelligence So here Maharaj Yudhisthira Is noting signs Or symptoms This is one of the items That Krishna and Balaram learned In the school With Sandipani Muni How to read omens And Prabhupada talks about In Krishna book How if you see somebody walking With a full pot of water That's a very good omen If you see them walking With an empty pot of water That's not a very good omen Uh, We find this telling of signs is there throughout the Shastra. Akura was convinced that he would see Krishna because the deer were passing on his right and so many things. Uh, But this general tendency to want to tell things by their symptoms and by symptoms or by omens to decide what the situation is so one can act accordingly. I was thinking even how we checked the weather report. Right, Of course, in uh, Hilo, Hawaii, you don't have to check the weather report (laughs) because it's the same pretty much every day. But one likes to check the weather report. I, I remember when I was in Mumbai many years ago in the rainy season, and the devotees were driving me to the airport to fly to America. At that time, I was living in North Carolina. And the devotees said to me, Is it the rainy season now in America? I said, we don't have any rainy season. There was a long pause, like maybe five minutes. And then they said, do you get enough rain? I said, oh yeah, we get plenty of rain. Then there was another five minute pause. And they said, well, how do you know when it's gonna rain? I said, well, you don't. (laughs) They said, how do you know when to bring an umbrella? So I was just thinking how the that the difference in area was incomprehensible to them. But the point is that we do like to know. We like to observe the symptoms, and by observing symptoms, we want to be prepared. Uh, We look for symptoms in our own life, of health or disease. Uh, We also look for symptoms in our relationships. I was reading recently how that certain researchers were able to judge within about 20 seconds of seeing the interaction between a husband and wife, whether or not their marriage would last. And the main thing they were looking for was any signs of contempt. If they saw that either person thought that they were better than the other person, and then they could predict that that marriage would fail. And depending on the frequency and degree of contempt, they could tell you how soon it would fail. So just from a symptom. So Mara Yudhisthira is here noticing that the miseries of the material world have become very prominent. During the reign of Maharaj Yudhisthira, with Krishna on the planet, they were practically speaking, no miseries of life. We read this also in the story of Lord Ramachandra, that the world was basically free of miseries. There was not even any death if you didn't want to die. (laughs) Uh, So people are hankering for that sort of situation. But we also should be very aware of what are the symptoms in the world and in our own life. And somebody was asking me this morning, well, this morning here, because now it's the morning morning there, but anyway, the morning here where I am, uh, they were asking, how do you know when you're doing something, if you're doing it selfishly or you're doing it for Krishna? So there are symptoms by which you can judge what are your motives. There are symptoms by which you can judge, just like you can judge your material health by symptoms. There are symptoms by which you can judge your spiritual health. And on an individual level, and also on a society-wide level, Maharaj Yudhisthira was able to judge the spiritual health of society by looking at the symptoms in the world in general. And Prabhupada's making the very strong point here, that at the modern time, at the time of his writing this purport, which he wrote this purport sometime in the 1960s, and certainly the same situation is prevalent today in 2011, that there are so many natural catastrophes, so many disasters, and just too cold, too hot, too much rain, too little rain. There's practically speaking very few places you can go on the whole planet right now where the weather is generally comfortable. I mean, Hawaii is one of those few places where it doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. Uh, But even in Hawaii, some places don't get enough rain, and some places get too much rain. What to speak of the rest of the planet? You know, my son lives in San Diego, which is supposed to have a perfect climate. But even there, most of the year it's too dry, and in the winter it gets cold. So, most of the places people live on this planet have times when it's much too cold or much too hot and there's far too much rain. Almost daily, if one checks the news, you'll find about some natural catastrophe where there's floods or there's a terrible storm. And people think it's just random. They think, oh, it's just mindless nature. But it's not. It's not. It's a symptom of the lack of Krishna consciousness on the planet. It's a symptom that people in general on the planet are out of harmony with the will of the Lord. As Prabhupada says here, the only way to gain real auspiciousness is to surrender fully in devotion at Krishna's feet. And because in general in the world, that's being mocked. (laughs) The governments of the world are turning more and more to secularism. I mean, even in India, even in India, we were just recently presenting our Krishna conscious learn to read books to a meeting of the heads of Hindu schools. So these were not government schools; these were Hindu schools, and they looked at our books and said, "Oh, they're too religious." It's interesting because our books are not. Their preaching is very soft. But still, they said, too much Krishna, too religious. The Muslim students in our schools will be offended. That was the mood of the Hindu schools. What to speak of the government schools. This is in India. I, I was, must admit that I was shocked. So the general mood in the world is that people have learned to become ashamed of religion. Just like advertisers They teach us to have new embarrassments and shames that we didn't have previously, just so we'll buy their product. You know, you have to be ashamed of having dandruff or a ring around your collar or something, (laughs) or having teeth that don't sparkle like the stars at night. And by creating these uh, false embarrassments for you, then you get to spend your money on their product. In a similar way, the media and the government of the planet has created in people a sense of shame about being religious. It's something to be, it's something to be embarrassed about, something that one is not supposed to speak about. And therefore all over the planet the social norm has become that one must be a materialist. It's presented that religious people are fools. But people do not understand that the symptom of such a secular society where people are ashamed to admit that they're religious, what to speak of being very religious, is going to be natural catastrophes. Of course, it's interesting because sometimes leaders of various religious groups will make that connection. And they'll say, this particular natural catastrophe is the wrath of God for our sinful activities. And immediately such a person is soundly criticized in the press. (laughs) Oh, you're just making people feel bad. This is the situation in which we find ourselves, such that now the Russian government is saying that Srila Prabhupada's purports in the Bhagavad Gita are stirring up hatred. They should be banned like some book of Nazism. So I'm sure they would feel this way about this purport here in the Bhagavatam also. How dare you claim that the miseries of life are in relationship to our own behavior. They're just simply random. Uh, They're just coming from some sort of just natural forces. Of course, this is absurd. You know, if you're living in a home and there's no heat and no electricity, you know, either the system is broken or you didn't pay your bill. It's not that it's just random. It's not that it's just, well, I don't know if the power will be on today or not. It's just random. Even in India, it's not just random. It doesn't work because the system is broken or a monkey's jumping on the wire. But it's not like it's just some random forces of nature. You know, if, if you turn on your tap and no, there's no water, you probably haven't paid your water bill. There's a direct relationship. And in the same way, in the whole universe and the whole planet, If you don't perform Jagya, Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita third chapter, then you don't get the necessities of life. And without the basic necessities of life, we're going to be miserable. And Prabhupada talks about how these miseries, that they create great agitation. What does he say here? The aggregate result is agony of the body and mind. So this is one of the many, many purports of many... Times that Srila Prabhupada points out that Krishna consciousness will make us even materially happy and materially prosperous. Now, just as it's possible to notice signs of the weather or notice signs of religiousness or secularism in society as a whole, it's also possible to notice the signs of our own spiritual advancement. I mean, I get asked the question so many times. How do I know whether or not I'm Krishna conscious? How do I know what my motives are? Now, of course, this is a very good question. It's a question that Arjuna asked in Chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita. He said, how do you recognize somebody who's advanced in spiritual consciousness? What, are his, what is his speech? What is his language? How does he sit and how does he walk? So the Acharyas have explained that this means what is his inner consciousness how does such a person relate to others? How What does he do when he's inactive? And what does he do when he's active? So Krishna says that the symptom of somebody who's on the transcendental position is that their happiness comes from within. Their happiness comes from the self, rather than their external arrangement. So this is something we can examine. Do I consider that my happiness is conditioned by my external arrangement. External arrangement means how hot or cold it is, how much food I get, how nice the food I get is, how people treat me, you know, is my wife nice to me, is my husband nice to me, are my children behaving, am I under a good government, do I have a good boss, how is my health, how much money do I have in the bank, how beautiful is my house, and so forth and so on. So are those that we consider to be the sources of our happiness? Or is our happiness coming from within, from our own relationship with Krishna? As Krishna says in the sixth chapter, to relish and rejoice in the self. So are we relishing and rejoicing in the self? Or are we trying to take pleasure in some temporary external arrangement? And Krishna also says that one who is spiritually advanced, he's undisturbed, by the material happiness and distress. Right? We hear that also earlier on in the second chapter. One devotee was talking with me today and said, Why does Krishna interrupt our service? And I, I said, Well, service can't be interrupted. And he said, no, you're doing some project for Krishna and there's some block and it stopped. I said, well, then if, there's, if you've done your best and there's nothing you can do to overcome the block, then you accept that that's Krishna's desire. Now he wants you to do something else, or at least he wants you to do something else now. And this person kept asking me, he said, but don't you get disturbed when the things you're working on are spoiled? And I said, Why? <laughs> you know, that's that's not the source of our satisfaction. The source of our satisfaction is our inner relationship with Krishna. Of course, just like Śrīla Prabhupāda, he wrote his translation and commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. He was writing by hand, about a thousand pages. And then his manuscript was stolen. So practically anyone else would have become discouraged. But Prabhupāda said, oh, it's the will of Krishna. And again he did it. He started again from the beginning. So the devotee's source of happiness is not its not dependent on what happens even externally in his service. If something wonderful comes to him, that's the grace of Krishna. If something terrible comes to him, that's the grace of Krishna. So both are wonderful. There's no question of good or bad from the material point of view, just like Krishna Das Kaviraj said. It's not, there's no meaning to this material good or bad because Krishna is all good, because Krishna is all merciful, and he's the supreme controller, then certainly for one who has surrendered to him, everything is good. And therefore the devotee doesn't lament at unhappiness or rejoice at distress. We have no, Sri Vastakur, whose son died in the middle of the kirtan. And when the women were crying, he said, Stop crying and disturbing the kirtan. So, this was his mood. He thought, oh, it's auspicious that my son has died in the kirtan in the presence of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. What is the problem? And he didn't even want to tell Chaitanya Mahaprabhu about the tragedy. And Prabhupada writes about this in the Purport in the Bhagavad Gita, where he uses the word callous. He said, one should be callous even about the death of a near relative. In other words, it's not, uh, the devotee's not concerned because that's not where he's getting his satisfaction it's not where he's getting his meaning it's not where he's getting his shelter he's getting it within and interestingly enough Krishna also says that one should be inaffected by the good or evil one receives not just for happiness and distress just like Vasudeva Vasudeva was living under the jurisdiction of Kamsa Kamsa killed his first six children that is certainly evil but Vasudeva didn't waver in his devotion to Krishna He didn't waver in his inner spiritual life. What to speak of a Kura, who was deputed by Kamsa, who apparently was one of Kamsa's servants. And still, although he was receiving evil in the form of Kamsa's association, he was not affected by it. And he continued in his service to Krishna. And Krishna explains, one should have a higher taste. One should be... Uh, not interested in the material tastes. One should just, uh, as Prabhupada talks about, Jamunacharya, who, when he thought of sex life, he would just feel disgust at it. Not aversion and hatred for women, but for the concept of enjoying separately from Krishna. It had no attraction for him. Just like those of us who take into Krishna consciousness... Uh, many of us may have eaten meat, fish, and eggs before we joined the movement. But if we think about such things, we're immediately disgusted. We have no interest because we have a higher taste. Uh, so this is also a symptom in our own life of whether or not we're actually taking shelter of Krishna. I also really like Krishna's description in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Uh, the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita is very wonderful because here Arjuna asks whether one should directly take to the personal path or go indirectly through the impersonal path. And Krishna answers very clearly that to go directly through the personal path to Him is far superior. And at the end of the chapter, He glorifies the symptoms of the devotees who have directly taken to this personal path. Someone who's not envious, who's a kind friend to all living entities. So this we can judge in ourselves. I I heard Viraj Prabhu give a very nice definition of envy recently in Vrindavan. He said, Envy is if someone else gets something nice, I become sad. (laughs) And if someone else gets something that's not nice, I become happy. So this we can gauge in ourselves. Do I feel happy at others' distress or happy at others' happiness? How do I react when someone else gets something better than I have? Or how do I react when someone is more talented than I am, or more intelligent, or richer, or has a more attractive spouse, or a happier family life, or a more satisfying service, or a healthier body? Am I full of hate and envy and criticism? Or do I take pleasure in their own happiness? Who doesn't think himself a proprietor, Krishna says? This is another symptom, that everything belongs to Krishna. Not just in theory, but do I use everything for Krishna's service? And then Krishna explains again in this twelfth chapter this idea of being equipoised, who's equal in material and happiness and distress, who's always satisfied, who's satisfied in any situation. You know, this we can also judge. Do I need a particular set of circumstances to feel satisfied? Or can I connect with Krishna in any circumstance? I mean, of course, we have an obligation to try as far as possible to situate ourselves so that we can use our propensities in Krishna's service, if at all possible. But the devotee is not really satisfied even by doing that. The devotee is satisfied simply that I'm doing some service to please Krishna. Then another nice symptom here, Krishna says, he by whom no one is put into difficulty... So generally in this world, I put so many people into difficulty for my own pleasure. I'm trying to be the center and have so many people serve me. And if they have to go through some difficulty to serve me, well, that's fine. I'm worth it. I'm important enough that people should be willing to go through difficulty to serve me. And if people are not willing to go through difficulty to serve me, then I consider that they're not really my friends. They're not really loyal family members or whatever. I criticize them in so so many ways. What kind of a a son or what kind of a wife or husband or friend or whatever are you that you're not willing to sacrifice for me? But those who have become Krishna conscious, they don't want to put anybody into difficulty. I was riding once in a rickshaw uh, with one wonderful lady in Vrindavan. And when the wala had to get out and walk the rickshaw because it was a difficult area, she got out and walked. And I said, you know, because what they'll do is they'll pull the rickshaw by hand, which of course is much more difficult than peddling it. I said to her, why are you getting out and walking? And she started quoting the third verse of the shikshastaka, amanina amanideina, one should not take any honor for oneself, but show all honor to others. Then Krishna is saying, and who is not disturbed by anyone. So this is quite a test of, our, of a symptom of spiritual advancement. Because it's so easy to become disturbed by others. Why is this person talking to me this way? Uh, why aren't they treating me with the proper respect and consideration? Why aren't I being appreciated? Why are other people getting credit for what I've done? Uh, why is this person complaining so much? And we feel uh, so much disturbance by the other people in our lives. So, it's such a simple thing. He by whom no one is put into difficulty and who is not disturbed by anyone. Then again, Krishna says, equipoise in happiness and distress. Then he said, equal in fear and anxiety. So, a materially engrossed person has so many fears and anxieties because they have so many fallible soldiers someone who's taken false shelter in this world. All of the shelters are subject to destruction at any moment. If I've taken shelter of my money, I can lose my money at any moment. If I've taken shelter of my fame and reputation, especially in the modern internet age, you can lose your fame and reputation in about five minutes. If I've taken shelter of my body, Uh, My bodily strength, my bodily ability, my bodily health, that can also be finished in a moment. One can have a stroke or a heart attack or get into a car accident. If I've taken shelter of my intelligence and my talents, that also can be finished. Or my network of friends and relatives and associates, they can also turn on you or they cannot be there or they can try their best to help you uh, but not be able to do so. And, uh, you know, take shelter of our country or take shelter of our organization. So if one has these false shelters, one is always going to be full of fear and anxiety. So the symptom of one who's taken shelter of Krishna, abhaya vindore, he's become abhaya, he's become fearless. He knows that nothing can hurt me. I am eternal. I'm never born, I never die, I can't be hurt by water or weapons or dried by the wind or anything. So that is a symptom of taking shelter of Krishna. We can see, if my material shelters start shaking, do I become filled with fear? Does my heart start beating faster and I start perspiring? Or do I say, I know Krishna is my protector and Krishna is my maintainer? And then Krishna says, someone who's not dependent on the ordinary course of activities. So one who can serve Krishna in all situations, not that everything has to be perfect. I have to be living in this place with this kind of association, this kind of circumstance. And then someone who's, Krishna says, not striving for some result. So the devotee is striving, of course, for some result. We were just reading in Chaitanya Charitamrita, in Mahaprabhu's instructions to Sanatanga Swami. Where he said, "Prema, pala, boga, prema is love, pala is fruit, Boga is enjoyment, that the devotee is enjoying the fruit of love, so that result the devotee is certainly striving for that they want that fruit, <laughs> but the devotee is not interested in any external fruit in this world. I mean, obviously we want to offer Krishna so many nice things. We may want to offer Krishna a beautiful temple or even just a wonderful plate of food, or a nice new outfit, or whatever it is that we're doing, offering Krishna some money, whatever. Uh, But ultimately, the ability for us to offer Krishna those sort of external things is not under our control. We're one of the five factors of action, but we're not the controller of our action. So it's only a fool, a muda, who thinks, I am the doer. Therefore, the devotee, knowing that they're not the doer, they're not striving for some external result. They're striving simply for Krishna's pleasure. Right? Krishna says, one who renounces both auspicious and inauspicious things. In other words, someone whether life is auspicious, whether the astrologer says, okay, everything you want is going to happen to you, or whether the astrologer says, Oh, you're going to get sick and you'll be poverty-stricken and everybody will criticize you. Uh, the devotee goes on in their service to Krishna. And one who is equal to friends and enemies, equal posed in honor and dishonor. Uh, someone who doesn't think, Oh, this person is my friend and this person is my enemy. But one who thinks, Everyone who's come before me is helping me in my service to Krishna. Of course, uh, the majuma devotee is supposed to treat differently the friends, the innocent, and the demons, but not with any envy or any hatred or any attachment. One's relationship should be free, uh, that whatever you want to give me in friendship, freely, uh, that I will uh, accept also freely, and I'm giving myself to you freely, uh, without any obligation, that nothing is obligating me, and I do not want to get anything from you under obligation. And again, Krishna explains the symptoms of Krishna consciousness in the 14th chapter, uh, again that time due to a query of Arjuna, where Arjuna says, how can we tell the symptoms of one who's transcended the modes of material nature? And I particularly like what Krishna says, one who does not hate illumination, attachment, or aversion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear. And Robert says there in that purport, that as long as we have the material body, that the material body is going to be subject to the modes of material nature. But the devotee remains neutral. Uh, The devotee doesn't take it very seriously, doesn't think, oh, this is me. The mind will feel sad, the mind will feel happy, the body will feel tired, the body will feel energetic. And knows that this is not me. Uh, Sometimes there's going to be illumination when I'm desiring purification and liberation. Other times there will be attachment, where the mind will be full of so many desires and hankerings. And other times there will simply be delusion, feelings of sleepiness and confusion. But I know that none of that has anything to do with me. And of course the primary symptom that Rupa Goswami gives of advancement is undeviating devotional service and free from the propensity to criticize others. So these are the symptoms... You know, we're, we're always alert to see, are things going to go well for me, or are things not going to go well for me? We're constantly looking like that. Of course, most of us haven't studied the science of omens like Krishna did, so we may not, may not be so expert as Maharaj Yudhisthira, who could observe what was going on in the world, and just from those omens could deduce what was happening with the Supreme Personality of Godhead and with the world in general. But at least we should be able to gauge our own spiritual life and see, am I actually making some advancement? So, not that we go around constantly, uh, although Krishna talks about the introspective sage, not that we're going around constantly uh, introspecting ourselves, uh, but certainly we should periodically assess, am I making spiritual advancement? Am I actually becoming more Krishna conscious? How am I behaving? And not just to assume that, well, because I'm in the Hare Krishna movement and because I'm externally following everything, therefore I'm okay and I'm Krishna conscious. It's very, very easy to go on for a long time and not really be making much progress because we don't look and see, well, am I actually equal Am I actually feeling joy in Krishna consciousness? Am I feeling connected with Krishna? And that should be the goal of all our activities. I was just reading today something I've read so many times, but it, somehow it really struck me today, where Prabhupada was saying how Krishna has come in the form of the deity because he wants to talk to you. I guess a few days ago, a friend of mine was talking with me, and she said, Urmila, do you know of anybody who's talked to Krishna? <laughs> and if so, how do they do it? And then I was reading that quote today and thinking, Krishna's actually anxious to talk with me. He's waiting. When is this person going to be receptive to hear what I have to say? So this should be the kind of symptom that we're looking at. Is Krishna talking to me? Is Krishna revealing himself to me? You know, Am I open to actually having my relationship with Krishna? And this is the primary symptom to judge our advancement and whether or not we're really progressing on the path of Krishna consciousness, not just how many things can we do in the external world. So the unfortunate situation is that right now in the world, in general, there is not a conducive position for our spiritual life, and Prabhupada is, of course, very sorrowful about that in this purport. So our mission, of course is to bring Krishna into the world. Although Krishna left this planet 5,000 years ago, or you can say as Mahaprabhu, about 500 years ago, still the Bhagavatam is Krishna's incarnation. The Hare Krishna mantra is Krishna's incarnation. And we are meant to change the whole system of the world. We are meant to bring back to the world the symptoms of a Krishna-conscious society. Of course, we can only do that for the world when we first done it for ourselves. So, physician, heal thyself. So we should be alert to the proper symptoms in our own life, as well as alert to the proper symptoms in the world. One other kind of side note I had in looking at this verse is I really like how Maharaj Yudhisthira addressed his brother Bhima, Nara Viagra. And Prabhupada translates this, O man with a tiger's strength. The literal translation would be (laughs) man-tiger. And we find throughout the Shastra this very beautiful and poetic way that persons address one another. So, you know, sometimes in our Hare Krishna movement we have disagreements and sometimes heated disagreements about how we should speak to one another how the men should talk to the women, and the women to the women, and the men to the men, and the women to the men, and the juniors to the seniors, and, and so forth. And I've sometimes thought that it would be nice to go through the Shastras and really make a, a study of how the various devotees speak to one another. We'll find that it's not simply monolithic. It's not that every time they speak to each other, they speak to each other the same way. We find in the Bhagavad Gita there's so many different terms that Arjuna uses to speak to Krishna. Oh, Janardana, oh Rishikesh. And then Krishna speaks to Arjuna in so many ways. Prita or Bharata or just Arjuna. He talks about him as his friend. So we can understand a lot about the culture of a society by how people speak to each other. In fact, uh, you know, on another note, there there was a problem at one time with the Korean airlines where they were having an inordinate number of plane crashes. And it was discovered after some time that the main reason was that whenever the pilot was flying and there was a problem, the co-pilot coming from a culture of great submission to authority would be hesitant to tell the pilot what the trouble was and would just kind of hint around it. And by the time the pilot figured out what was going on, the plane was crashing. And uh, the way that the problem was solved was that some consultants went in and insisted that all the Korean pilots had to learn English. Just the nature of the English language eliminated this system of deference to hierarchy. For example, in the Korean languages, I don't remember the number, something like ten different ways of saying you. (laughs) You know, I know in Hindi there's at least two different ways. And many languages have several ways of saying you, depending on the status that you have to the other person. Whereas in English, all we have is you. (laughs) So by teaching the pilots English, just that one stroke, by changing the language, they were able to change the culture of deference enough so that the Korean airlines ended up having one of the best histories of avoiding crashes of all of the airlines. Uh, very interesting. Uh, So here we can see something of the, here in the Bhagavatam, we can see something of the culture of Vedic society by how persons addressed one another. So if you're talking to a Ksatriya to compare him to a tiger is a compliment, you know, if you talk to someone else, maybe comparing them to a tiger would be an insult. You know, if I walked up to someone today and said, "Well, you're like a tiger," then they might think, "Well, what do you? What do you mean? <laughs> you know, or, am I am I nasty? Am I fierce?" But according to their position, a the different addresses may be complimentary or may be insulting. Just like when Vishrami Muni, Prabhupada talks about this a lot, came to see Maharaj Dasarath, and so Maharaj Dasarath said, uh, how are things going in conquering the repetition of birth and death? Whereas Vishwamitamuni said to Dasarath, how are things going with your citizens? Are the citizens being protected? Are they receiving all the necessities of life? Is everything happy with your family? So these different forms of address indicate different understandings of culture. And hopefully we can go beyond some superficial understanding of that and dive deeper into the poetic nuances of how persons in the Shastras address each other. But anyway, that was a little side topic that I also noticed from this verse. So I hope our system is working well enough that we can get questions and comments and discussions.
1: Motivated, how they think um, anyway that was just a, a brief comment uh, a question, you were talking about reaction and, uh, on, on, a, on such a broad scale uh, that sometimes we hear the term collective karma and I was wondering what your thoughts were on this term collective karma I've never read it in Shastra I've never heard Prabhupada use it And something that's always sort of bothered me about it was it it seems to imply that there may be some innocent people that are accepting reactions caused by others, whereas I would be more inclined to think that that no one is really innocent if someone is somehow involved or experiencing some reaction. um, Maybe there's a reason that they're there in that company, etc. No no one is innocently suffering as a result of collective karma. What are your thoughts on that?
0: My thoughts on that is if God is all good, then there's no nothing that's happening that's unfair. Even though we may not always be able to figure things out. That's my that's my basic reaction to it. I mean you could also say on the basis of this purport, Prabhupada's saying that There's so many problems with the weather and with scarcity because we're living in a demoniac society, but a devotee of Krishna is also living in that society, and certainly they're not demoniac. I mean, why just devotees of Krishna? Just any uh, God-conscious person is also having, in one sense, to suffer by being in a society of atheists. So in that sense you know, I've got to tolerate the same weather that everybody else has got to tolerate. It's not that there is a little spot of sunshine over my head when it's raining on everybody else just because I'm performing Sankirtan Jagya. But at the same time, you know, we all accept that whatever situation I'm in is Krishna's arrangement and is fair and is perfect, whether it's due to some sort of Uh, as you say, collective karma or whatever it's due to is not necessarily something that I can fathom. And, I mean, the concept of many people having to suffer at one time for the same thing. I mean, Prabhupada, he may not use the word collective karma, but he talks about it in terms of war. Prabhupada talks about it in terms of democracy. He said, if you elect your leaders, and if the leaders then declare war then that war will spill over into civilian areas because the civilians are also responsible for the declaration of war by having elected the leaders. Whereas if you have a monarchy where you don't have elected leaders, that they would have the war on the battlefield and the citizens would not have to directly share in the reaction. So I think that's a a simple example that Srila Prabhupada gives of how a group of people can collectively have to suffer a reaction for their collective behavior and Prabhupada also talks about how when there's a meat eating society that the children of the society are slaughtered in the war just as the people were slaughtering the animals and I mean just from the point of view of logic if a whole lot of people are getting or due to get something similar well you might want to give it to all of them at the same time so that's efficient (laughs) you know Prabhupada also talks about that how Krishna can you know kill so many demons at one time through some natural catastrophe. So I understand things that way. But I've, I've concluded that with my limited, very limited vision and intelligence, all I can do is accept on principle that God is all good and that everything is fair. And I may, I may not, I will not be able to understand the nuances of that in a particular situation. Suppose is that if people didn't want to tell him, then he wouldn't know. He had to guess at it indirectly. It was something they didn't want to reveal to him. But you know, their systems of communication were rather slow and, and cumbersome in general, unless you had Narada Muni coming in and telling you. They weren't. You know, this was even true on the Earth not that long ago. You go back thirty-five years. And in order to call India, you had to send an aerogram a month in advance and ask that somebody be by the phone. You know, and that was only 35 years ago. And then they'd be by the phone at that date and time, and you might not even hear what they were saying. You know, I, I think that, especially now with the Internet, we take instant communication for granted. I mean, again, it wasn't that long ago when, what, what war was it? Was it the Civil War? There was some war where the battles were going on for two weeks after the truce was signed. I can't remember which war it was. It was some, some, yeah. Right, okay, so it was the War of 1812 or some other wars like that where the peace treaty was signed and there were still battles going on. And people were still, you know, dying in battle and being wounded in battle weeks after the armistice was signed, because the methods of communication were very slow. And you know that had its downsides, but frankly, it had its upsides also. You know, if if all you were aware of was your own little village, then you didn't have so many anxieties. Anyway, my main assumption with Maharaj you just you not knowing, was because people didn't want to tell him. Because obviously the cases that we know about were simply that people were hesitant to tell him, and therefore he was deducing it indirectly through the signs on the on the Earth.
1: Yeah, I, I thought I the same. your take?
0: Okay. Anything uh, else from? Okay, well, thank you. No one else has a question. Thank you very much. All glories to Shila Prabhupada.